1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 12 to 20 All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Something the devil loves to do is to take something which God created as good and pleasurable, uh, something which has been designed by God and is a gift from God uh, for us to enjoy, and then Satan perverts it, and he turns it into something which is dirty and bad. Uh, One of those things is the very food we eat. Um, So as we read the New Testament, and especially in the letters of the New Testament, a common theme which was very topical for the early church, but maybe not so much for us today, is the whole subject of eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And so in places like Corinth, before they became Christians, eating meat was very much a part of the way they worshipped their pagan gods. So you can just imagine the family meal. Well, kids, this um, this roast that we've got today, it's been, it's been dedicated to Zeus. So let's all honour Zeus and, and eat up and eat all your veggies as well. And so... When they became Christians, they, came, they had quite a dilemma. Can I still eat meat? Or do I have to be a vegetarian? Now, that's, that's an awful thought, isn't it? Imagine, imagine that sort of cost for your faith. I mean, when we count the cost of our faith, yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy to die for my faith, but giving up meat, I'm just not too sure about that. Uh, but you can see their dilemma. If this animal has been sacrificed to a pagan god, and I eat its meat, can I, can I do that without actually worshipping that false god? You see, God had given them the gift of food and the gift of meat for their sustenance and for their enjoyment, but the devil had perverted it and he turned it into a sacrifice to demons. And so Paul had a pretty big job in front of him of, of helping these new Christians to be faithful to God and at the same time to experience and to live out the full freedom that we have as Christians by the grace of God, uh, to experience the freedom that we have in Christ. And so he used to teach all things are lawful. If when you eat meat, even if it maybe has been sacrificed to an idol, if in yourself you're just eating tucker and and you're not acknowledging or worshipping some other god, then you're free to eat the meat. And so what he was doing is he was teaching them that Christianity 
is not a religion of religious do's and don'ts, where you can't do this and you can't do this and you must do that and you must do that. And it's not a list of certain goals that we have to achieve in order to be saved. Our faith is we've been set free, not through our own efforts, but through what Christ has done for us. We are free. And so what Paul taught across the Gentile churches was all things are lawful. Yes, you can eat your meat. And no, you don't have to obey all of the Jewish religious laws and customs. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to worship on the Sabbath. You can eat pork. You can even keep, eat kangaroo if you're desperate. Well, he didn't tell them that. Um, he obviously didn't know about kangaroos, but maybe he might have been reluctant to tell them anyway if he knew how bad they actually taste. But the message is we are set free from the law. That's the gospel. But it's pretty obvious that there were some within that, that church in Corinth who took this principle of freedom and they began to apply it in all sorts of ways that, well, it wasn't at all celebrating the freedom that we have from sin in Jesus Christ. They were using the mantra of freedom to once again enslave themselves in sin. This was their logic. If I am truly free, if all things are lawful for me, then I'm free to do whatever I like. And they use this perversion of freedom to justify for themselves an immoral lifestyle. Which is why Paul says this, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You see, rather than the freed men and the freed women who God had created them to be, they had become captives. They were being dominated by the very sin that God, that Jesus had died to save us from. You know how sometimes our sin gets the better of us? Our flesh gets the better of us. Like, like we're tempted to do something and we know that it's wrong and we know that it dishonours God, but then we take the attitude, eh, but God will forgive me. You know, so I know God doesn't want me to be doing this, but God will forgive me. I know that this will dishonour God, but God will forgive me. You know, I know that God wants me to do this and serve him in this way, but I, it's okay if I disobey. It's... It's not that serious, because God's very gracious, isn't he? Yeah, and God will forgive me. Yeah, we take grace for granted. Or am I the only one who's ever done that? I'm sort of not seeing a lot of connection here. Am I the only one who does that? Oh, goodness me, I'm a terrible minister. Because um, I know that I've done it. And then later on, I've actually wept in the knowledge that by taking grace for granted, it's as if I've unnecessarily driven yet another nail into Jesus. It's as if I've unnecessarily been responsible for another lash of the whip, another thorn of the crowns, another word of ridicule or ridicule or, or somebody spitting upon him in humiliation because I've taken grace for granted. Now, I don't know if that's theologically right or not, but 
That's how I felt at times when I've been convicted by the Holy Spirit that I've taken God's grace for granted. We were bought at a price. I was bought at a price. You were bought at a price. And it was an extraordinary price. The life of Jesus, his suffering and humiliation. Therefore, we should glorify God in our body. We should glorify God with, with what we do and how we live. One of the very first things that should be on our minds when we get up in the morning is, how can I honour God with my body today? That's how Jesus lived. Jesus lived to glorify God. And we've been saved, we've been bought for that very same purpose, to glorify God with our bodies. You see, the world, the world, that, they don't get to see what we think. They don't get to see how we feel about God, but they do get to see what we do. And whether we honour God with our bodies or whether we dishonour God with our bodies. But let's get more specific. Today's reading is specifically talking about sexual immorality. Now, I've heard people accuse Christians of being obsessed with sex. I don't know about you Christians, you know, you must be obsessed with sex. Out of all of the different sins, this is the one that you always pick on and your one you always say is so extra bad. Well, what we learn from today's reading is sexual immorality is not a worse sin, but it is different. Sin is sin is sin. We're all sinners. Is a sexually immoral person a worse sinner than a gossip? Not at all. Is a person who lusts as they look at pornographic images, is that person a worse sinner than someone who covets a sports car in a magazine or, or someone who covets a diamond ring in a jeweler's window? Not at all. They're both sin. All sin, any sin, cuts us off from God and is deserving of death. The one who falsely accuses is no less guilty than the adulterer. And so sexual immorality is not a worse sin, but it is different. How is it different? Well, let's begin where Paul began. Paul began by absolutely demolishing the Corinthian logic of if I'm free, I'm free to do anything. He said this, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now you might have wondered, why did he start off this message today talking about the food being sacrificed to idols and whatnot? Well, it's because this is all tied up with, with what Paul is trying to say here. He's saying here, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is meant for the food. But this is all temporary stuff. God has created you in such a way that you can eat food. True? Some of us, he did a really good job on and we can eat lots of it. Uh, but God has created food so that it can be eaten by us. But God did not create our body for sexual immorality. Food and the need to eat are not eternal. This is a temporary requirement. Uh, now, for those of us who love to eat, you, you, what we're finding out now is when we actually go to be with the Lord, it talks about this heavenly feast and whatnot, but we're actually not going to need to be eating. 
<laughs> you hear what I'm saying? Um, the need to eat is not eternal, but our bodies are. Do, do we truly grasp this, that our bodies are eternal? You know, the, the Greeks, they used to long to be rid of their bodies. They, they believed that their bodies was that part of them that was holding them back. And their greatest desire was maybe at their death, this time round, maybe, maybe I might become a free or floating spirit and they'll be connected with all of the spiritual stuff and not have to put up with this body any longer. That's what the Greeks wanted. Now, most of the Eastern religions that our Western society seems to be so enamoured with seek to also leave the body behind and to just fulfil the soul or the spirit. Uh, that's what the whole yoga and, and the Buddhist meditation thing are all about, is trying to leave behind the body and empower the spirit. But the truth of the matter is, God didn't only save our souls. He saved our bodies. Just as Jesus Christ in the body was raised from the dead, our bodies will be raised. Now, some of you mightn't be too happy with that. Some of us might be currently thinking, well, I'm actually not too happy with the body I've currently got. It's getting too old. It's getting too flabby. It's getting too... It's never been attractive. I know, I know how you're feeling, if that's any of you feeling that. But, but by the way, none of you lot have any reason to feel that. Um, but the thing is, our bodies aren't going to be the same. They're going to be changed. They're going to be renewed. But don't be deceived. Our bodies are eternal. When God renews this earth, our bodies aren't going to be left behind in a pile of ashes. You have been created as an eternal being. And that's not just your soul. It's not just your spirit. It's you. All of you are an eternal being. The body is not meant for sexual immorality because the body is eternal. The body is meant for the Lord and the Lord is meant for the body. Isn't that an, an enlightening thought? Not only are you meant for the Lord, but the Lord is meant for you. And, and it's not just, he's not just meant for your spirit. He's not just meant for your soul. Your body is incomplete. Uh, more than that, I, I shouldn't actually use that word incomplete. When we say that, you know, we're incomplete without God, you've heard people say that, eh? There's that God-shaped hole inside of all of us and we're not fully complete until we've got God. That makes it sound like, you know, we're nearly there. We're nearly complete. Uh, We've just about ticked all the boxes, but just to find, finally finishing me off, I just need this God inside of me. That's not the way it is, though. Your body hasn't found its primary purpose. It hasn't found its most important purpose unless it's filled with the Lord. It's not the finishing off. It's the starting point. Unless we are filled with the Lord... We've missed the whole point of why we're created. We've missed the whole point of why we live. That's our whole purpose for being. Our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are that very holy place 
where God lives. Right here. Let's, let's do a test, see who's been listening. I want everybody to put your finger up like this. Come on, everybody, put your finger up like this. Yeah. Something. Now I want you to move this finger and point to that very holy place where God lives. Right now. Where is that very holy place where God lives? <laughs> no, don't point at me. <laughs> now say with me, this is that very holy place where God lives. Ready? This is that very holy place where God lives. Thank you. Paul says, do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ? Now, what do you think of when I use that word members? We sort of tend to think of like, I'm a member of the pistol club. Um, somebody else might be a member of a, of a bowls club. Somebody else might be a member of something else, right? That's not what he means when he says we are members. This arm is one of my members, right? If somebody gets dismembered, it means one of their members have been cut off, an arm or a leg or a hand or a foot or something. And so when it says that we're members of Christ, it's talking about tissue and organs. We are members of Christ. We are the tissues and organs of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ? Shall I take the tissue and organs of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Now, by the way, when he uses the word prostitute there, he's not... Uh, I, I was thinking we're going to have to take the kids out during the service today, but I think the kids are all old enough to hear this. Um, except for those that just definitely won't understand it. Um, when he's talking about prostitutes, he's not talking about somebody you pay for sex. Um, biblically, a prostitute is somebody, um, a personification, if you like, of somebody who is sexually immoral. Okay, So if we become sexually immoral, or if we are joined to someone who is sexually immoral, is what he's talking about. Shall I take a member of Christ and make them members of someone who is sexually immoral? Never, is the word he says. When I was younger, I remember reading a book written by someone who used to be a warlock. Now, a warlock, for those who don't know, is the male equivalent of a witch, all right? So somebody who is a Satan worshiper and he's a bloke, but then he became a Christian. And this was the story of him um, coming out of this life of Satanism and, and becoming a Christian. And he told us in, this, in that book about how the Satanists would used to try and desecrate Christ by breaking into churches and desecrating the bread and the wine. Um, and what they did to it was quite repulsive. But what Paul is saying here is how sexual immorality desecrates. Because as a Christian, we have become part of Christ. Christ is in us. Sexual immorality is not meant for the body. Sex has been created by God as good and wonderful and holy. But Satan has perverted it and corrupted it 
by taking it out of the committed relationship of marriage. Most English translations of the Bible, of verse 18, say something like, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, in the original Greek, uh, the word other isn't actually there, right? So the original Greek, and some Bible translations get it right, and they say, every sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against their own body, right? So what it's telling us is that no matter how disconnected you feel that, that a sexual encounter may be, we're not disconnected at all. It's very much sinning not just against God, but against one's own body. It's polluting the body. This is Christ's home. It's his temple. It's that very holy place where Christ lives. And sexual immorality pollutes it. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Something that... Uh, you probably don't expect to hear in church is God created sex to be a thing of beauty, uh, to be a thing of joy. Um, a man and a woman in a covenant of marriage commit to one another before God. And biblically, it seems to be that the act of sex rather than the marriage ceremony itself is where a man and a woman join together to become one flesh. There's nothing casual about so-called casual sex. Something mysterious, uh, something which I can't explain happens when a man and a woman come together and unite physically. The persons join the two in some way become one. And this is why sex before marriage is no little matter. It's dangerous. Some might describe it as being soul-destroying because they find that they've joined themselves to somebody and they can't ever take it back. And very often it becomes something which persists in the memories uh, and it's something which troubles future relationships because they've found that a one flesh relationship with this person because uh, sorry because they find that they're in a one flesh relationship of some kind with this person who they don't even know anymore or they may not have ever even known them in the first place or it might be somebody that they thought they knew and now they can't even stand them they don't even like them but there's something persists 
in their memories and, and in how they feel about them having been joined to this one person. And that's why the Bible teaches that we should save ourselves for marriage. That's why we should save ourselves for that person who truly loves us more than they love themselves, for that person who is willing to wait, for that person who loves us enough to commit to God before God to a lifelong covenant as a husband and a wife together in a one flesh relationship at the exclusion of all others. All others before and all others after. That's what marriage is about. So what's the big practical lesson here for today? Well, Paul tells us two things. In the light of what Christ has done for us, and in the knowledge that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and in the knowledge that when you join together sexually with someone, you're becoming one body, one flesh, he tells us two things. Flee from sexual immorality. Run away from it. If you find that you're living in sin and you don't know what to do about it, well, stop thinking about it and just accept what God says about it. Stop making excuses. Run away from it. Flee. If you find that you're in a place of temptation with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, get out of there. Get out of the room. Flee. Run away. If you're parking, start the car up and drive it to a servo and have a cup of coffee instead. If the temptation is getting too difficult for you, time after time when you meet, well, don't date alone. Date together with others. Don't put yourself in a position of temptation. By the way, I, as well as probably most married people here, are talking from experience. It's tough to, to deal with the temptation. And Paul's other word to us is to glorify God in your body. The more time we spend glorifying God in what we do, the less opportunity we have to toy with the temptations that dishonor God. And we need to also understand this. Sex inside of marriage glorifies God too. Now, sometimes when you... Uh, hear Christians talk or the teaching of the church on, on sex and so on, you sort of can be, come to the point of thinking, okay, well, it's only for the production of children and even then I'd better not enjoy it. You know? But it's actually something which God has created as good and is to be celebrated within marriage. Now, having said all this, Every one of us also needs to hear and understand this. I've already said sexual immorality is not a worse sin, but it is different. We also need to hear it is not the unforgivable sin. All sin can be forgiven except for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? That's the rejection of the activity of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. The only unforgivable sin is the rejection of Christ 
It's the rejection of the one who brings forgiveness. So when it talks about this unforgivable sin, it's a statement of logic. If I reject the one who can bring me forgiveness, well, obviously I can't be forgiven. But that isn't sexual immorality. In Jesus Christ, there is total forgiveness. There is total freedom. We're told there that he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with the Lord. Yeah? This is the picture of our total forgiveness, our total freedom. How can we become one in spirit with Christ? Only by him forgiving us and taking away all of our sin and making us holy. And so no matter what your history has been, no matter how any of us may have dishonoured God with our bodies in the past, repent. That's what it means to flee, to flee sexual immorality, to run away from it. That's the repentance. And when we repent, that's when we're forgiven. And when we're forgiven, that's when we get this new chance to honour God with our bodies. Now, we Christians, we're, and we preachers especially, we're always saying the gospel is good news. Right? We always say that, hey? I hope I always say that. Gospel is good news. Do I say that? Good, good. Well, that's because it really is. It really is good news that no matter what we've done, no matter how bad we might feel that our sin has been, we can be forgiven. And no matter how badly anybody has sinned against us, we can even forgive that person because we've already experienced forgiveness from Christ. We too can forgive others. Our bodies are eternal. As such, they are meant for Christ. And Christ is meant for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you bought our bodies at the enormous expense of your own life. You died on the cross to set us free from the law of sin and death. By your blood, you have cleansed us. You have made us holy. You've renovated us and, and, and made us people fit for you to live inside of us. But oh, the shame. We have not honoured you with our bodies. We have not glorified you with our bodies. God, forgive us. Lord, we hear your word today flee from sexual immorality and by your grace may we heed this word and obey this word God forgive us you told us that even if I look at a woman in lust I've already committed adultery and I say this from a man's perspective maybe from a woman's perspective if I've longed for intimate connection with another man I've already committed adultery in my heart. Lord, we've already have this sexual immorality. It's not only in our hearts, it's something dirty that comes inside of us and that we need forgiveness for. 
God, forgive us. And Lord, I want to thank you that your church, every one of us, come here today on an equal footing because we are all forgiven sinners. And Lord, may we be a holy people who glorify you with our bodies as you dwell in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.